You may be seated. About two years ago, several news outlets reported that President Vladimir Putin put together a committee to recommend amendments to Russia's constitution. The committee, the committee gathered more than 700 proposals, and one of them made headlines by recommending that Putin's title be changed from president to supreme leader. What made it newsworthy at the time was that many saw this as an attempt to make the way for Putin to retain power after the end of his fourth presidential term, which will end in 2024. But it wasn't the politics that caught my attention in that headline. It was the use of the word supreme. Other countries like Iran use that title to identify their highest political or religious authorities. But are these men and their positions truly supreme? Now, I'm toying with language here. But could the leader of Russia or Iran truly be the highest, the highest in authority and rank and importance or quality? That's what it means to be supreme. Well, no. You see, when men add supreme to their title, they immediately have to qualify it. You see, he's the supreme leader of Iran, not Iceland. Their authority extends only to the borders of their country, and their rank carries less weight outside their circles, and their power is always limited to their resources, their influence, and their own mortality. The Washington Supreme Court, well, that's the highest court in our state, but is it supreme? Well, no, there's a higher court, the Supreme Court of the United States. Well, is the Supreme Court of the United States then truly supreme? Well, not really. Their authority extends only to certain legal matters, and their decisions only apply to this country. Their decisions are not supreme in Canada or Uganda. So no, in the strictest sense of this word, they are not supreme. Because if they were, there would exist no higher authority anywhere or under any circumstances or at any time. And so it is with created things. Before we label people or positions as supreme, we have to make qualifications and exceptions so that the titles fit. But the supremacy of Christ is not like that. His supremacy knows no qualifications and no exceptions. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Therefore, he is supreme over all things and has the highest authority and rank and importance in the universe. That's our Lord. That's who we follow. He is supreme in the most strict sense of the word. But more of that as we get into this morning's text. I do want to give you one more example, though, uh, only because I found it funny. Uh, when I Googled that headline about Vladimir Putin, I think I entered a search term like uh, supreme ruler or something like that. 
And what I got, what I got was a, an ad from Taco Bell. The uh, ad targeting algorithms must have thought that I was interested in a burrito supreme. (laughs) In jumbo letters, the ad read, the supreme ruler of the burrito empire. (laughs) And here's the subtitle that caught my attention. Supreme. That's a pretty powerful title. That's what caught my attention. The rest of it is just wacky advertising. Supreme, that's a pretty powerful title, the kind of thing a burrito dictator might call itself (laughs) if it were going for a political power grab in a previously democratic burrito republic. (laughs) I don't know about you, but we don't remember voting for a supreme leader of the burrito empire. Well, I'll make the same point. Before you label any created thing as supreme, even a burrito, you must make exceptions, but it is not so with our Lord. So if you would, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, and uh, you'll want to be able to see verses 15 through 20 all on a single page. I've said this before, but these verses, these six verses, could be an early Christian hymn. It has the form of a poem, and some of your English translations will actually have it formatted like a poem. I can't prove that it is one, but to keep things simple, I'm simply going to refer to these six verses moving forward as the Christ hymn, like many commentators do. You see, the Christ hymn is the crux. It is the heart, the very core of Paul's argument in his letter. And isn't it fascinating that he launches with this hymn? If we understand the Christ hymn, we understand exactly where Paul is headed with his arguments against the false teaching that was influencing the church at Colossae. This hymn has two parts. Part one is in verses 15 through 17, where Paul proclaims the Son of God as supreme Lord over the old creation. And then part two is verses 18 through 20, the section we're studying now, and Paul proclaims that the Son of God is the supreme Lord over the new creation. Or to put it differently, the first half proclaims the Son as Lord over the universe, and the second half proclaims Him as Lord over the universal church. And I'm using the word universal there the way Pastor Josh did last week in speaking of Christ as the head of the church. I'm using it the way that we use it in the Apostles' Creed to refer to all who have been saved throughout history, all who are saved, and all who will be saved before the return of our Lord. If you remember, in the first half of this hymn, we saw four grand titles or declarations about the Son of God. He is the image of God. He is the firstborn over all creation. We're going to see that word again this morning, firstborn. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In the second half of the hymn, we find three more majestic titles for Christ. Christ is the head of the body, which is the church. 
If you didn't hear Josh's message last week on that little phrase, listen to it. It was excellent. Then in today's verse, we see that he is the beginning and he is the firstborn from the dead. Well, we're still working through verse 18, so let's take a look at those last two of the seven declarations. The first, Christ is the beginning. The obvious question that we have to ask when we read something like that in the scriptures is this. He is the beginning of what? Two answers. We saw the first answer a few weeks ago in verse 16. God the Son was the beginning or the author of creation. We call that the old creation. For by him all things were created. This is verse 16. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and so on. You see, that's one reason the Apostle Peter, in a sermon, called Christ the author of life. He said to the Jews, this is right outside the walls of the temple, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. The Son is the beginning He is the beginning in the sense that he is the author of the old creation. As the creator and sustainer of all things, he is the beginning or the source or the originator of all created life. So the first answer to our question is that the Son of God is the author of the old creation. He is the beginning. But this declaration is not merely about the creation of the universe. Yes, the Son is the author of the old creation, but now, as evidenced in his resurrection, Christ is the author of a new creation. He is the beginning of new life, new life that can only be found in him. You see, these two declarations combined make it clear that this is a reference to Christ's resurrection. And the words are closely related to the words which Jesus used to comfort Martha as she grieved her brother's death. Remember what he said to her? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, old creation, yet shall he live. That's the offing of the new creation. That's John chapter 11. You see, the Son of God has life in himself. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, John 5. And not only does he have life in himself, but he grants life to whomever he will. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Christ's resurrection then is the beginning of a new creation. The kingdom of God's reign and rule and sovereignty over the hearts of men. Just as he is the author of life in the old creation, so he is the beginning of the new creation. Therefore, anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So what is Christ the beginning of? He's the author of the old creation, and he is the author of 
the new. We're still in verse 16. That final title of the Christ hymn now makes the resurrection come more clearly into focus. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn is not merely a reference to time or sequence, just like we saw in verse 15. Yes, Christ was the first in time to be raised from the dead, never to see corruption. Others had been raised from the dead, but they had to live out their days and die like everyone else. But our Lord was raised to incorruption, never to die again. In that sense, he was the first, and that is true. But his status as firstborn, just as we saw in verse 15, is about his right and privilege as the son to inherit ruling supremacy over his father's kingdom. As one scholar wrote, when Christ rose from the dead, he achieved power over death as the last enemy of death. And, we in, and when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he received an escalated position of kingship that's greater than he had during his ministry. And what he's talking about there is Ephesians chapter 1 and the great might that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Recognize those spirit powers from verse 16? And he is far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his foot and gave him as head over all things to the church. That's the title at the beginning of this verse. As head over all things to the church. Christ was like the Old Testament first fruits, sacrificed to God. Yet by his resurrection, he also ensured the resurrection of all of his followers. In fact, Paul wrote, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is those who have died. Christ's resurrection marks the beginning of the resurrection of the dead. It is the beginning of a new creation. As we'll see in the coming weeks, there is much more to be said about this new creation. What is in the offing in the resurrection is nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth. All things will one day be reconciled to King Jesus. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. But why? Why is the Son of God given such lofty titles? Why does Paul elevate him with such glorious declarations? Verse 18 tells us. Paul now reaches back to the top of the hymn and he pulls in all seven of Christ's majestic titles. He is the image of God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is before all things. He is the one in whom all things hold together. He is the head of the church. Christ is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. And the reason that these titles proclaim the power and the position 
that he has over creation and the church and the new creation is so that, so that in everything, Christ might be preeminent. He is preeminent in creation. He's preeminent in the church. He is preeminent in the new creation. He is preeminent in everything. But we don't use that word very often, do we? Preeminent. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament where that word translated preeminent is used. So it's unique, at least to the New Testament, though it's found in other writings of the time. It means to hold the highest rank, to be first, to have the first place. And translators have tried a variety of of English words to try to capture the sense of it. Some translations use preeminence, like we have in the ESV and also in the King James Version. Primacy, to have the first place, as you'll see it in the New American Standard Bible. Some will call it supremacy, or some will say that it means to be supreme. And all of those are good translations, so long as they convey to the reader both the ideas of supreme importance and the highest position of rank and authority. I like the word supreme because we understand it and because we rarely use the other word. To be supreme is to maintain the highest authority, rank, importance, or quality. To see the link, John Calvin is worth quoting, from this, that is from the titles given to Christ in this hymn, Paul concludes that supremacy belongs to him in all things. You see, Christ's supremacy is an unqualified supremacy. For if he is the author and restorer of all things, that is of creation and the, old cre- and the new creation, it is manifest that this honor is justly do him. So it's only right and proper, says Calvin, for such a supreme being to be given worship, worship of which he alone is alone is worthy. But how is all of this connected to our lives today? In January, when we started this series in Colossians, I used a phrase to try to sum up the theme of this letter. I said that this letter was about the all-sufficient, all-satisfying supremacy of Christ. I still think that's true, but if I was forced to pick only one of those words to describe the letter, I'd have to say that this book is about the all-sufficiency of Christ. But then I'd immediately want to qualify it and tell you that the reason that Christ is all-sufficient is because he is supreme. That seems to me to be the logic of Paul's letter. Christ is the all-sufficient and all-satisfying Lord because he is supreme over everything. Now, his argument gets more involved than that, but that's the basic building blocks of Paul's argument. Listen to Dick Lucas. He's one of the commentators that I've quoted to you before. The connection between Christ's supremacy and his sufficiency is a vital clue for the student of Colossians. Possessing preeminent 
adequacy, Christ must be the perfect Savior. His sufficient adequacy depends upon His supreme authority. And what we've seen thus far in the Christ hymn has been nothing less than that. The supreme authority or lordship of the Son displayed brilliantly in the most exalted terms imaginable. Paul presents Christ to the Colossians as the one who occupies the highest position in the universe and the one who holds infinite authority and power in his hands. He is God. He is the creator of all things. He is supreme in the fullest sense of the word, vastly unlike rulers in Russia and Iran. Then Paul uses that truth to combat the false teaching that seemed to be infiltrating the church at Colossae. Let's see how he does it, and then let's take the same principle and try to apply it to ourselves. Here's the principle again. If Christ is supreme, that is, if he is supreme in importance, in position, in power, and in authority, then he is sufficient for everything his creatures need. If he is the supreme Lord of all, over the creation and over the new creation, then he alone must be sufficient to save and to sanctify and to satisfy all needs and desires, spiritual or otherwise. So let's take a broad look at the, the Colossian heresy. It had so many different elements, but at its root, it seems to be that it was a denial of the sufficiency of Christ. Three examples. These false teachers offered the Colossians a special spiritual knowledge, and they claimed that this special knowledge could save them or satisfy them more fully than what they had already experienced. And Paul counters that philosophy by declaring that Christ alone was sufficient for them, and this comes from Colossians chapter 2. That he was sufficient for them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery because in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You tell me what greater wisdom or knowledge could there be than that which is found in Christ? It's absurd for them to look elsewhere. Number two, these false teachers offered the Colossians a greater experience of spiritual fullness. Oh, if they would just keep some dietary regulations and follow their religious traditions. And yet Paul tells the Colossians plainly that the fullness of Christ alone was what would infinitely satisfy them and be sufficient for them. For in him, wrote Paul, Christ, in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. If you've been filled in him, what greater fullness could there be? Number three. The false teachers also insisted in the worship of angels. 
But how unthinkable would it be to bow before a created being when the supreme creator and sustainer of all things is in the room. He alone is worthy of our worship. So Paul says, don't worship creatures. Rather, hold fast to the head. Hold fast to Christ, the supreme authority from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Colossians 2.19. What greater being could be worthy of your worship than Christ, the supreme Lord of all? There's more, but those three examples should be enough. If Christ is supreme in importance, position, power, and authority, then he alone is sufficient for everything his creatures need. Now, if Paul used the all-sufficiency of Christ to counter the Colossian heresy, then how can we apply it to our lives today? 21st century Vancouver, Washington. Let me bring this down to earth. I only have time for one example, but it's a shotgun blast, so I'm likely to hit something. (laughs) What do you think is your single greatest spiritual struggle? I'm sure there might be different answers from each of us. And I might get this wrong, but I suspect that for many of us, it is a restless discontented heart. Morning and night, we are constantly on the prowl for things or people that will satisfy us in one way or another. We have restless hearts. Some of you flit on your phones incessantly, wasting hours upon hours on the momentary titillation of new messages, posts, Pictures, videos, and breaking news. But at the end of the day, you're left glazed over and empty. Some of you are addicted to food, wine, or whiskey. Your restless heart craves satisfaction. And it believes the lie that that satisfaction can be found in Taco Bell or Total Wine. Those pleasures, brothers and sisters, last but for a moment, and then you walk away with little more than regret. Some of you are hooked on pornography. Your restless heart craves the physical rush of a flash of sensual pleasure, but it always leaves you empty and full of shame. St. Augustine was spot on when he wrote in his autobiographical prayer to God, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till we find its rest in thee. O restless hearts, the fullness and satisfaction you seek cannot be found in food or drink or in the flashing images on your phone. The fullness you seek is to be found only in Christ. In him, Paul said, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. King David points us in the right direction. 
You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hands are pleasures forevermore. Is that not what your restless hearts long for? Fullness of joy and pleasure that lasts forever. Why then do you seek it in the cheap substitutes offered by this world? Look to Christ. He is the supreme Lord of all. And therefore, He alone is sufficient to satisfy your very soul. C.S. Lewis nailed this when he said that our problem is that we're half-hearted creatures who are just far too easily pleased. Indeed, he wrote, if we considered the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let me encourage you this week to do one thing. Fan the flame of your affections for the all-sufficient Christ. Be pleased, be satisfied with nothing less than Him. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Fan the flame of your delight in Him by seeking Him earnestly in the Word. Eat lots of it. Digest it well by meditation. Because in those pages, Christ is on display in full beauty to you. Seek Him where you know you will find Him. Fan the flame of your delight by fervently seeking Him in prayer. Commune with your Father. You have an opportunity this week to fast and pray with your brothers and sisters. Use that time to implore God to reveal Himself to you in His Word and satisfy your soul. He is a loving Father, and He loves to give good gifts to His children. Just ask Him. Fan the flame of your delight by fellowshipping with fellow lovers of this all-sufficient, all-satisfying, supreme Christ. If you want to stay warm, stay close to the fire. So do that this week. Fan the flame of your affections for the all-sufficient Christ. And finally, I know that there are some in here today who have no clue what I am blabbering about. I'm speaking a foreign language. You don't know this all-sufficient Christ. Well, you know him like, a, like you know a character in a history book. 
but you don't know him like a faithful, loving husband or father. To you, I say, embrace him today. Trust him. His life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection is fully sufficient to rescue you from your enslavement to sin and to satisfy your soul. You can bank on him. He alone is sufficient to satisfy that restless heart of yours. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Go to him. Go to him, brothers and sisters. Eat, drink, be filled, and be satisfied forever. Let me pray for us. Father, our hearts are so restless and we've been fooled to think that we can satisfy it with, with stuff, with people. And Father, you've made plain to us in your word that that is impossible and that we are seeking to find satisfaction in broken pottery. And you've called us to drink deeply from the fountain. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for not even looking inward and asking what I'm seeking. Asking what I'm seeking my satisfaction in. Father, I pray that you'd help us this week to to fan the flame of our affections for your Son into a wildfire. Father, we want to see your people here at Living Water Church renewed. We want to see spiritual renewal in our hearts. We know, we know that we are so distracted by this world. Father, we want to be satisfied in your Son. Help us to do that this week, Father. I pray this in the name of of your Son, Jesus. Amen.